right. Well, thank you so much, Kelly, for that and getting us to thinking about the fact that Jesus prayed. We have been in this series of messages, What Did Jesus Do? And we looked at how Jesus invited. He reached out to people from all walks of life and all backgrounds and invited them into the kingdom of God. And once they became children of God, Jesus then invested in them. He poured himself into them, equipping them, encouraging them, empowering them as he sent them on mission into the world. And today I want us to look at how Jesus interceded for those he sends on mission. And that includes us. Jesus equips, he empowers us with his authority, with his power, but also with his prayers. Jesus' prayers, as we heard in our New Testament reading, and as has been mentioned several times this morning, Jesus right now is at the right hand of the Father, making intercession, praying for you and for me. Our high priest is in heaven, pleading on our behalf. And throughout the Gospels, just as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night before he was to be tormented and killed, Jesus also prayed in the, in the wilderness as he was being tempted. Jesus prayed before meals. Jesus got up early in the morning to pray. He looked for times to get away and be alone with God the Father. He prayed uh, before he healed people, before he raised Lazarus from the dead, he prayed. Jesus prayed before he made big decisions, like calling the twelve disciples to follow him. But Jesus' longest prayer, recorded in the Bible, is found in John chapter 17. If you'll turn to John 17, we call that the high priestly prayer. And Jesus prayed this on the night that he was betrayed. And he prayed this just before, uh, either, uh, either in the upper room before they left, or he prayed this en route to the Garden of Gethsemane. But either way, uh, his disciples were there overhearing this prayer. Can you imagine that? That must have been like standing in the Holy of Holies to listen in as God the Son had this deep, intimate conversation with God the Father about His life and ministry, about what He was about to do on the cross, about the future for His people and His kingdom. I mean, just can you imagine what that must have been like to be there listening in on this holy conversation? And we are privileged through John's writing of this in John 17. We too get to listen in on this intimate prayer. And there's a lot of deep theology in this prayer that we could spend weeks looking at. There's so many sermons you could preach from this chapter. So I, there's a lot here to unpack that I'm just, oh, it's so hard. Uh, this is one of those sermons where a lot more was left on the cutting room floor, you know, like they, like they have in movies. There's a lot of extra footage that's not making it into this message. Uh, but, but we'll come back and we'll look at this some more at another time. Uh, but this morning I want us to focus on Jesus' priorities in this prayer. What kinds of things did Jesus pray about? What did he ask for on the behalf of his followers and, and on our behalf? And that can give us some clues about what kinds of things we should pray for as we pray for ourselves and for one another, for our brothers and sisters in Christ as we together are going on mission into this world. Now, the traditional outline for this, if you look in your copy of the Bible, you'll probably see this outline. Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for his disciples. Jesus prays for all believers. This morning, I'm going to expand that a little bit. I'm not going to look at just these three parts of Jesus' prayer. I'll refer to them, but I'm going to look at the specific requests that Jesus is making. There are specific requests he makes in this prayer for himself, 
for his disciples at that time, but for all disciples in all times and in all places. And the first thing we see Jesus pray for is God's glory. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. In this first part of his prayer, Jesus is praying for himself. And that tells us right off the bat that it's never selfish to pray for yourself. Some people think, oh, we shouldn't pray for yourself. And that's just not true. Jesus taught us to pray for our daily bread. Throughout the Bible, we see the men and women of God crying out in desperate pleas for God to protect them and to provide for them. And here Jesus leads us by example in praying for himself. But he also tells us that when we pray for ourselves, it should always be with a heart toward the glory of God. The glory of God is what his prayer for himself was concerned with. You may remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus told us that God will supply our needs if we seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. And in the Lord's Prayer, He taught us to begin our prayers with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Well, that's what Jesus is doing right here, to seek first God's kingdom and righteousness, to pray for God's name to be hallowed. That's to concern ourselves with the glory of God, to pray for, to live for, to work for the glory of God. And here Jesus begins His prayer Doing just that, he's hallowing the Father's name. He's seeking first God's kingdom and righteousness. Now this word glory is mentioned eight times in Jesus' prayer, five of which are right here in these first five verses. This focus of glory has several dimensions. Uh, Let me talk about three of them real quick. There's the pre-incarnate glory that Jesus shared with the Father and with the Spirit as the triune God before he stepped down into earth. This is the glory that Jesus laid aside voluntarily so he could take on the form of a servant and live and minister among us on earth. Then there's the glory that Jesus brings to the Father through his ministry of teaching and miracles, through his obedient death on the cross, Jesus glorifies the Father. And then there is the return of that pre-incarnate heavenly glory that the Father will give Jesus through the resurrection and the ascension, and as Jesus sits at the right hand of God to rule and reign and make intercession for us. The glory that Jesus had before His incarnation and after His ascension, but the glory that Jesus seeks to bring to the Father through His life and ministry. G. Campbell Morgan wrote this, The deepest passion of the heart of Jesus was not the saving of men, but the glory of God. And then the saving of men, because that is for the glory of God. Jesus was always obedient to the Father's will and doing the Father's work. He was always about the glory of God. And we should also have God's mission and God's glory as the focus of our prayers and our lives. And now Jesus moves into the next part of this prayer where he specifically prays for the disciples Uh, of his earthly ministry. But I think this also applies to us today. Jesus is praying for the Father to give us what we need 
to glorify God. Jesus is glorifying the Father, but He wants us to also bring glory to God. But first I want you to look at verse 6. Jesus goes on, He says, I've revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. So here Jesus is transitioning from praying about Himself and His ministry and His glory, and He's praying for the disciples, for those that the Father gave Him out of the world. He said, they were yours. You gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now, Jesus says this also up in verse 2, this idea that his disciples were given to him by the Father. Gift or give, that's another key phrase, another key idea in this prayer. Uh, The words gift or give occur 17 times in this prayer, almost exclusively referring to the Father as the giver. And we know from the New Testament that Our God is a good Father who only gives good gifts to His children. James tells us that He is the Father of lights and every good and perfect gift comes from His hand. Now typically, we think of God giving us Jesus as a gift of love, don't we? I mean, we're coming up to Christmas. We think about that. Jesus is the greatest gift. John 3.16, God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son But what an amazing thought in Jesus' prayer that we are God's gift to Jesus. Is that not mind-blowing to think about? I mean, we, we think about Jesus being God's gift to us, and He is. But here we see that we also are God's gift of love to His Son, and, and, and that is so mind-blowing to me that that is mentioned seven times in this prayer. Jesus thanks the Father for the gift of His disciples. Verse 10, if you'll skip ahead to verse 10, tells us what kind of gift we are. All I have is yours and all you have is mine and glory has come to me through them. He's talking about His disciples. We glorify Jesus, that's the kind of gift we are. Now, what a stunning reality that faltering, sinful, failing human beings can represent the glory of the Holy Son of God, that we can be a gift to Jesus. Because let's be honest, y'all, we're pretty much a hot mess most of the time, aren't we? But we are a gift to Jesus, a gift that brings Him glory. And now Jesus goes on to pray for and and ultimately provide us with three things that we need so that we can glorify the Father. The first thing is His Word. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the words that you gave me, and they accepted them. And he already mentioned up in verse 6, not only did they accept Jesus' words, they obeyed Jesus' words. He says, they know with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. God has given us the incarnate word, Jesus, but he's also given us the inscribed word, the Bible. And it is through the inscribed word that the incarnate word is revealed to us today. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 3 that all scripture is God-breathed. It's inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we talked about this some last week, that it's through the Word of God that Jesus equips us for the work, the service that He has called us to do. 
In John's Gospel, Jesus tells us that the Spirit of God will inhabit His followers and lead us into the truth of His Word, reminding us of everything that Jesus said and did. And of course, before the Spirit can remind us of these things, we first have to do what David said, and we have to memorize these things. We have to commit them and hide God's Word in our hearts. We have to meditate upon and read and study God's Word, enabling it to light our paths and to guide our feet. It is through the Bible that we know Jesus, and it is through Jesus that we know the Father. Jesus said in verse 3 that the essence of eternal life is to know God the Father and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. See, eternal life isn't just length of life. It's also depth. It's not just quantity. It's also quality. In fact, there is no life apart from the giver of life, God Himself. And so the more we read, the more we meditate upon, the more we live out and share God's Word, the more we will glorify Him and share in His glory, His Word. The second thing Jesus gives us so that we can glorify God is His prayers. Look at verse 9. He goes on to say, I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Now, Jesus isn't saying that He never prays for the world. I mean, obviously, again, John 3.16 tells us Jesus' heart for the world, right? He came to give His life, not to condemn the world, but that through Him the world might be saved. God loves the world. But what Jesus is saying is right here, specifically, He's praying for His disciples. As we heard in our New Testament reading, again, Jesus is praying for us every day, constantly making intercession on our behalf to the Father. And you know what? God the Father always answers the prayers of God the Son because they are one. They are united in heart and mind and purpose. And so everything Jesus prays for in this prayer, God has and will grant him. Hebrews 4.16 tells us, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That means that we can come boldly before God's throne and we can pray for the same things that Jesus prayed for and have confidence that God will grant them. So praying what Jesus prays for in John 17 is critical for us. We know that these are things that are according to the will of God. We're always praying for God's will. You know, in your name, let, let your will be done. Right here you go, what Jesus prays for. And then the third thing Jesus gives us to help us glorify God is He gives us His church, the people of God. He gives us one another. Look at verse 11. I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world. I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so they may be one as we are one. The thing that Jesus is praying for is us, the church, his believers, his disciples. This was the heart of last week's message. I encourage you to go back and listen to it if you missed it last week. We need each other as the body of Christ. Just like your body, your, your fingers need your hand, your hand needs your wrist, your feet need your knees. Our head needs our eyes and our ears. We need all the parts of our body to be whole. We as the church need each other to be whole and to be fully functioning for the glory of God. And this leads us, verse 11, into the next request that Jesus makes. He now focuses specifically on praying for us, making requests for us, and he prays for our security. He prays for our security. Let's look at verses 11 through 16. 
Again, Jesus says, I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. And here's the request. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by that name you gave me. None has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that Scripture would be fulfilled. He's, praying, he's, he's talking about Judas right there. He says, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Now, one of the major theological themes in this prayer is the relationship between the church and the world. And again, we, I could preach a whole sermon just on that. But I will say this. Remember last week I told you that the Greek word for church is ekklesia. And it means the called out ones. The church has been called out from the ways of the world. As Paul described in Colossians 1, he rescues us from the dominion of darkness and he brings us. It's, it's like we've defected from one country to another. He brings us into the kingdom of the Son. Here Jesus prays about the fact that his disciples, though they are called out of the world, out of the ways of the world, out of the, the systems of the world, he leaves them in the world, even as he goes to heaven. This word world occurs 18 times in this prayer. That tells us the importance of the context of our life and ministry. Jesus is very concerned about this relationship between his disciples and the world. Here Jesus is praying for the protection of his followers in a world that's going to be hostile to them and to their message, the message that Jesus brought. Their message is a continuation of Jesus' message about this eternal life he came to give, about the revelation of the name of God. Let's talk about that word name. I know I'm talking a lot about words. But one of the things that can really help us as we study the Bible is look for the reoccurrence of a word. How many times does that word happen in a passage of Scripture? That tells you a lot about what God is wanting to say to us. Name. The word name, that, that idea in the Bible, especially in reference to God, it, it means more than just your name. You know, like, you know, we, sometimes we just pull up in a baby book and just pick a name. Oh, we're going to name you this. But in Hebrew culture, names meant something. And someone's name meant their identity. It meant who they were, their reputation, their character, their nature, the essence of who that person was. So to pray according to Jesus' name, for example, means that you're praying in accord with Jesus' nature. That your prayer lines up with Jesus' character and His revealed will to us. You're not praying against what Jesus stood for and what Jesus desires. Well, you know, even today we say that somebody has a good name. We don't literally mean their name. Like, man, isn't Trevor just a great name? No, we're talking about that person. We're saying that's a person of character. That's a person who has a good reputation. They have a good name in the community. So what does God's nature and character have to do with our protection and security? That's what Jesus says, that he's protecting us by the name the Father gave him. How does God's name connect with our protection, our security? Well, let's think about how Jesus revealed God's name. What of God's nature and character did Jesus reveal to us? Well, if we just limit that to John's gospel, we just think about what we read in John's gospel. 
Every miracle in John's Gospel is called a sign. And there are seven of them. Eight if you count the resurrection. And how do you not count the resurrection, right? It's the miracle of all miracles. So there are eight signs in John's Gospel, seven of which are connected to one of these I am statements that Jesus makes. So the point of everything Jesus says and does in John is to reveal the name, the nature and character of God the Father to us. He says, I am the bread of life. Now, this phrase, I am, if you remember, and we talked about this a few weeks ago, the Old Testament name for God, the name revealed to Moses by God, the divine covenant name of, of the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses is I am. We call it Yahweh. Some, sometimes it's translated in the Latin as Jehovah. That's what that name is, the great I am. Jesus claimed to be the great I am. He claimed to be the revelation of the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses, the covenant God of Israel. But he added these qualifiers. He said, I am the bread of life. I'm the one who quenches your hunger and nourishes and sustains your soul. He said, I am the light of the world. I'm the one who comes to expose sin and to reveal righteousness. He said, I am the living water, the wellspring of life that will come up within you and quench every thirst. He said, I am the good shepherd. All that that we learned about the shepherd's psalm, Psalm 23, is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus revealed to us who God is and that He is God the Son. It's that nature, that character, that name of God that is the assurance of our security. Our good shepherd guards His flock. He protects us from the enemy that's prowling around seeking to devour us. He doesn't let any of His sheep be lost. We need not fear the darkness because He is the light of life and He will supply all of our needs. Amen? In 1 John 4, 4, John writes, You dear children are from God and have overcome them because the one who is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Now, although this section of this prayer contains some of the, the difficult negative aspects of our life in this world, notice what Jesus also talks about in this section. In verse 13, there's a little three-letter word right there. Joy. In the midst of talking about all the suffering that we'll endure in this world, he brings up joy. Now, earlier in John 15, 11, he said, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And that was right before Jesus told them, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. And Jesus didn't tell them this to discourage them, to get them down, to make them worried or frightened. He said this so they could have peace and joy. Now, how does telling us this give us peace and joy? I mean, it's 2020, right? I mean, all of the things that's happened this year, from, from the pandemics to the lockdowns to the, to the economy to the election to the riots and the unrest, in the midst of all of that, it's like Jesus is saying, have peace and joy. How does that work? Well, he tells us in John 16, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen? That's worth shouting and dancing about, isn't it? We don't find peace in the world. 
We don't find joy in the world. We find our peace and joy in Him because He overcame the world. That's what Easter Sunday is all about. So we must not let our hearts be troubled by what's happening in our world today, by the ways that we may have to suffer for the cause of Christ, by the rejection and the ridicule that we may face, because God will protect us. He will keep us secure. Jesus hasn't lost a sheep yet. And even when we wander and when we stray, He goes after us and rescues us. We can rejoice and have peace because of who Jesus is. He is victorious. He has overcome. He has been glorified. And so will we. God is our refuge and strength, our very present help in trouble. Paul writes in Colossians 3, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you've died. You've died to those earthly things. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, what's he say? You also will appear with him. In what? In glory. Jesus prays for God's glory. He prays for our security. But then he prays for our sanctity. Let's look at verses 17 through 19. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So how is it we can be in the world, but not of the world, as Jesus said? Being called out ones doesn't mean that we remove ourselves from the world. It doesn't mean we isolate ourselves from society. God isn't interested in us being hermit-like monks cloistered away from the world around us, from the lost and the broken and the wounded and the despised. No, Jesus laid aside His glory. He humbled Himself to the form of a servant, lived among us, touched the unclean, ate with sinners, took up our sin and our shame upon Himself on the cross. Just as the Father sent Jesus into the world to save the world, so Jesus sends us as sheep among wolves, as lights in the darkness to hold forth the word of life, to shine like stars in the universe. He sends us as salt in the earth to preserve the world from further corruption and to season people's lives by God's grace. A light under a basket is useless, is it not? And salt in the salt shaker can't flavor your food. We've got to shine the light and get out of the salt shaker. He wants us to be in the world. But just as salt is different from your grits, and just as light is different from the darkness, we are to be in the world, but different than the world. Jesus is clear. He's not praying for us to be removed from the world, but to be sent into the world. And as we're sent, He prays for our security because the evil one, our enemy, the devil, is seeking to destroy us. He's seeking to discourage us. He's seeking to ruin our witness. Which is why Jesus doesn't just pray for our security. He prays for our sanctity. That's how Jesus protects our good name our reputation, our character and witness from the influences of the world. That's how we grow in ever-increasing glory. It's through being sanctified. Now that Greek word sanctifies, hagiazo, and it means to set apart for God's use. And remember I said last week that the Spirit of God takes the Word of God in the context of the people of God 
And he uses that to transform us, to sanctify us, to make us more and more like Jesus, to help us to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. The Spirit uses the Word to cleanse us, to set us apart, for God's purposes. Jesus said in John 15, 3, you were already claimed because of the word I have spoken to you. And then here in verse 17, sanctify them by truth. Your word is truth. Again, Warren Wiersbe explains it this way. He says, with the mind, we learn God's truth. That's the work of the word. With the heart, we love God's truth. That's the work of the Son. And with our will, we yield to the work of the Holy Spirit and we live God's truth. One of the results of our sanctification and one of the ways in which God protects us and is glorified by us is Jesus' next request. And that's for our unity. He prays for our unity. Let's look at verses 20 through 23. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that they all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that, I, that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Now, so if you had any doubts that this prayer applies to us today, it's erased here in verse 20. He's specifically talking about us right here, right now. And the heart of this final part of Jesus' prayer is unity. That's the ultimate demonstration of God's work through His people in the world. And we learn here that the unity of the church is patterned after the unity of God Himself, of the divine Godhead, His own nature, the absolute oneness of the Father and the Son are now spiritually transferred to believers for a specific purpose, for our spiritual unity. Now, Jesus isn't talking about organizational unity here. I don't think this is a verse that, that it's against different local churches in a community. You know, we're not disobeying Jesus because, you know, there's our church and there's Fort Creek and there's the Methodist church. He's not talking about denominations. He's not talking about multiple worship services. I've heard people use this passage to, to talk against all of that. He's not interested in the externals of organizational unity. Jesus is interested in the internal spiritual unity that transcends all of those externals. God joins our spirits through the Holy Spirit. Because, as one commentary puts it, Jesus' blood is thicker than water and thicker than any human bonds. Because our unity is based on the unity of the triune God, our unity as believers bears witness to the world of the name of God, the nature and character of God. What kind of God do we worship and serve? Remember what Jesus said right before the Last Supper in John 13. He said, A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another by this. Everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So in that verse, Jesus says, the world will know we belong to him by the way we love each other. And in this prayer, Jesus says that the way the world will know that God sent Jesus and Jesus has sent us is because we're united. 
We must love each other the way Jesus loves us, and we must be one as God Himself is one. Because how we love each other and how we are united in heart, mind, and purpose reflects on the name of God. The world can't see God, but they can see us. We are the body of Christ on this earth right now. So if they see hatred and division within the body of Christ, can we blame them for rejecting our message? But oh, if they see love and unity despite our differences, if they see a church united in the midst of our diversity, what a powerful testimony the world needs to see now more than ever. And how can we do that? How can we love each other in unity despite all of our differences, despite all of the diversity within the body of Christ? There's so much that we could let divide us today. How can we be united? Because we share the same Savior. We share the same Spirit and the same Father. We share the same glory and the same gospel. We share the same mission and same work. And you know what? We're all going to enjoy the same heaven. We're going to be right there. There's not going to be a Baptist room and a Methodist room or a Democrat room and a Republican room. We're going to be together around the throne of God. That's why we can be as one. And that brings us to Jesus' final request, our eternity. Let's read the rest of this prayer. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me and where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them. And will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. You know, I think we see a touch of Jesus' humanity here. I think he's thinking of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He's thinking of Matthew, Thaddeus. He's thinking of these men that he spent three years with and he wants them to be with him. He doesn't want to leave them behind. You know, Jesus is a good host. He's got that gift of hospitality. You know how, how it is when you want to bring some family or friends over to visit, maybe to stay with you for a while, and you want them to, to feel welcome and at home? Jesus longs for us to come and be at home with Him. He longs to lavish us with that heavenly generosity and hospitality. Heaven is heaven not because there are streets of gold or pearly gates. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. Amen? People always want to know what's heaven like and... The Bible it gives us some hints and some little analogies and some snapshots, but you know, heaven is where Jesus is and it's where we'll be together forever. And isn't that enough? Isn't that enough? Peter writes that God does not want any to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's the heartbeat of the gospel. And that's what Jesus ends his prayer with. He ends his prayer with that. And once again, he talks about the glory of God. From beginning to end, his prayer is all about the glory of God. You can tell a lot about someone by what they pray for, especially if it's their final prayer, right before their death. And we see in here that what was on Jesus' heart was the glory of God. It was the security and the sanctity of His followers. It was our unity, and it was our being with Him in heaven for all of eternity. Church, we need to follow Jesus' example. We need to pray for one another daily, earnestly, specifically, and the concerns and priorities of Jesus' heart should be ours. Are you praying for the glory of God? Are you living for God's kingdom to come and praying for His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven? Are you longing and praying and living to share in that glory by revealing the name of God to the people around you? By inviting them to know eternal life? 
which is to know the Father and the Son that He sent? Are you praying for safety, security, and protection for your church? For your pastors and staff, we need it. Please, I beg of you to pray for us. For missionaries serving around the world. For our brothers and sisters in Christ that are truly living under oppression. Are you praying for safety and security? Are you praying for your sanctification? For that of your family and your church family that we should become more like Jesus and bear His fruit and shine even brighter today than before in a dark world. Are you praying for the unity of this church and for the unity of all Christians around the world? You know, we live in, a, in, in times of tribalism and division and unrest, and there really can be no better witness than for the church to display unity in the midst, not uniformity, unity in the midst of our diversity. Unity of heart, mind, and purpose. A unified vision. Hearts that beat together for the gospel, for the Great Commission. Are you praying for that? And are you praying and longing for eternity? Listen, one of the ancient prayers of the church is, Even so come, Lord Jesus. Is that your prayer? Every day, it seems like I pray that more and more. Even so come, Lord Jesus. Are you living right now with eternity in mind? You know, if you don't know Jesus, then the answer to that question is no. If you don't know Jesus, if you've not rejected the ways of the world, turned from your sin, and put your faith and trust in what Jesus did for you on the cross, then you're not one of His followers. You've not yet been given to Him by the Father. You are in the world and of the world. But Jesus stands here today inviting you, calling out to you to come into His family, to become God's gift to Him as a son or a daughter. I pray that if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you'd come right now. Don't let anything stop you. Maybe as a believer, you've been worshiping with us for a while and you know that it's God's will for you to be united with this church family. That this is where God wants to sanctify you. That you want to practice that unity Jesus prayed for with this local expression of God's church. We invite you to come and unite with our church. But for every one of us today as Christians and as members of this church specifically, are you praying? Let's follow Jesus' example. Let's pray for God to be glorified through First Baptist Church. Let's pray for our security, for our sanctity, for our unity. And let's pray with an eye towards eternity. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand and pray? And I hope that you will come in obedience today to what the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart. Father, we thank you so much for your love for us. It is far beyond our wildest imagination. What you see in us, Lord, is sometimes it's just beyond what we can comprehend. And that you, Jesus, would consider us as a gift of the Father's love to you. May we live up to that. May we live lives worthy of being those gifts. Father, if there's anyone here today that doesn't know you, that's not put their faith and trust in what Jesus did, what he endured right after he prayed this prayer for them, I pray, God, they would come today. I pray if they're online or listening on the radio, they would reach out to us and say, I want you to know I gave my heart to Jesus today. I belong to Him now. And if there's any here you would lead to unite with this church, I pray you would help them to do so, that we all could be one as you are one, and that we could pray for and encourage one another as together we make disciples of Jesus. It's in His name we pray.